Hello, I have the lovely Mark Billingham back with me. Hiya, Mark. Would you Hello, like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself, if there's anyone that doesn't know you by now? I am Mark Billingham and I write crime novels and uh, have been doing so for blah, blah, 20 odd years, 22 years, I suppose. I've just published my 22nd crime novel. It's the 18th in the Tom Thorne series. It's called The Murder Book. And yeah, it came out uh, a couple of, came out last Thursday. So I'm kind of tearing about pimping it shamelessly, which is kind of, you know, there's two, there's two part, parts of the job. There's writing the book and there's the shameless pimping. And actually, I, I enjoy the shameless pimping more than the writing, actually. The writing is the job. Um, and once that's done, then you can have fun doing the shameless pimping. Is that the only reason why you write, so you can go show off around the country? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty well. There, there has to be a kind of perk. You know, writing is uh, writing is not easy. I mean, I mean, and even when it's easy, it's still sort of lonely. You know, it's still just you. Um, so any chance to do something that involves somebody else, you know, whether it's talking to somebody like yourself or talking live at an event with another writer or, you know, tearing around the country with five other crime writers playing music, whatever it might be, is, uh, is always a lot of fun, yeah. Because you just got back from Canada, haven't you, as well? Yeah, yeah, we got, there was a new festival over there called the Motive Festival, um, which is uh, attached to the Toronto International Festival, festival of Authors, which is a, bit, a big general literary festival. Uh, and now they've started a specialist crime festival called Motive, and they invited the fun-loving crime writers over. So the six of us went over there for a week and did a couple of shows, and we all had separate book events, and yeah, it was terrific. And we had one show that was really special, outdoors, on the waterfront, you know, in this big outdoor amphitheatre, looking out Lake Ontario and the sun going down. And it was great. And we're all looking at each other going, how did this happen? This is just brilliant. Um, so, yeah, all, all that stuff is a lot of fun, yeah. Yeah, I think when we spoke last time, you were just about to release, is it Rabbit Hive? Yeah. And you were going to, you were due to have a big birthday. <laughs> I was due to have a big birthday. The big birthday has happened, obviously. Uh and yeah, Rabbit Hole came out, which was a very different book for me. Uh, that was a standalone book um, set entirely on a psychiatric ward and entirely in the first person. Um, not the easiest book I've ever written, but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, spending time inside that character's head. And yeah, that's out in paperback now, so I'm, I'm still talking about that. But uh, it's weird, you know, it seems like only yesterday that book came out and now the murder book is in my head and the book I've just finished is in my head which will be coming out next year. So it's sort of like, what book am I talking about? Which, where are we again? You know, it's the weird sort of lag, you know, in from when you deliver a book to when it comes out. And by that time you've written another one and hey, it's all good. It's all good. But sometimes you get a bit confused when, when you get to my age, Donna. <laughs> You're fine. Yeah, You're all right. Thoughts of a 40, wasn't it? The big birthday. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's absolutely oh, yeah. right. I'll, I'll settle for that. Hey, I'd settle for 50 for God's sake, but... Yeah, uh, you're fine. And uh, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't met, I hadn't met you, but I've since seen the Fun Loving Crime Writers Live at Bloody Scotland, which was epic. Oh, that was which great! Was the that first was... time, wasn't it, that you'd played after COVID? Yeah, yeah, that was our first gig back after COVID. We had to cancel a lot of shows. Uh, obviously, during lockdown, we had to cancel everything. Of course, you know, it's not a major gripe. Um, but yeah, that was a big show. So we had to get back together again early and rehearse a bit or rehearse a lot because uh, we hadn't done a show for a couple of years, you know. But that was brilliant. It was, yeah, it was such good fun. And uh, yeah, we're getting, we're getting back into it. We've got a little break now and then a very, very busy August. Uh, 
I think we're doing six shows in seven days at one point, which is, I've no idea how we're going to do that. I've no idea how we're going to manage it, really. We did two shows in four days in Canada and we were knackered. So six shows in seven days is, uh, is asking a lot, but we'll see. We'll see yeah. how we get on. The youngsters will be fine. <laughs> the youngsters, yeah, the coming. youngsters, the youngsters. Those of us of a certain age are going to be like lying backstage with tea and a, a, on a drip <laughs> and o- uh, oxygen on tap, but we'll be all right. I uh, have since interviewed Luca Veste and discovered that we were both born on the exact same day. Okay, okay. Which is really odd. He said he yeah. was going to ask his mum if I was another one of his siblings, as he has one All right. already. Oh, he's, got, he's, got, he's got quite a lot. And uh, now he's got a birth, big birthday next year, which means that you must have a big birthday next year. Yes, um, I do. I, I, yeah, I think we're going to play on his birthday, wherever that may be. We'll... we'll because we played on Chris Brookmeyer's 50th. We would have played on my 60th. Um, mm. But that obviously that didn't happen for obvious reasons. But we'll, we'll get together and play on Luca's 40th, yeah. Okay. Well, if it's somewhere near me, then I'll come as well, because obviously it'll be my 40th. I suspect it might be in Liverpool. I suspect. Yeah. You know, that is... It's a yeah, well, obviously, yeah, that's where he's from. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Because but... he will want to have a lot of family there. It is his birthday, you know. So I think, I think it's likely to be in Liverpool. Yeah, okay. I'll think about that. Okay, okay. It cost me a fortune travelling to see you a lot over the country. None of you lot live down here. (laughs) No, I mean, we all live, none of us even live, well, two people, you know, Val and Doug both live in Edinburgh, but apart from that, we all live, you know, we couldn't really live further apart, which means even trying to get a rehearsal together is, you know, a logistic nightmare. But uh, it's kind of worth it. It's worth it when it happens. Oh, 100%. And are you going back to bloody Scotland? Oh yeah, no, I'll certainly be bloody Scotland. The band, the band won't be playing in bloody Scotland because Val won't be there. Val will be in New Zealand, um, <laughs> so we can't play at bloody Scotland. But we're playing at Butte, at Butte Noir, and we're playing in Berwick at a big, a big music festival there. We're doing four shows at the Edinburgh Fringe, four nights running. Um, so yeah, we've got we've got a busy summer. We've got a busy summer. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about books? Yes. <laughs> Um, but I'm not going to ask you the same boring questions that you've been asked a million times, hopefully, anyway, okay. or try not to. It's my little challenge to myself. Um, so last time we spoke, I think we spoke about all the stuff you've done before and got into acting and then got into writing. Um, so I'm going to ask you if you were to be transported into one of your books as a character, which book would you choose? Oh, blimey. Well, it wouldn't be Russian Blood. Uh, sorry, it wouldn't be Rabbit Hole because I wouldn't want to spend... I wouldn't want to spend time in that on that psychiatric ward. Um, it would probably be Russia Blood, which is a lot of which is set in Florida, so that'd be quite a nice uh, a nice place to be hanging around. Um, most most of the other books, you know, I'd I'd be mooching around in North London, where I, which is what I do anyway. So yeah, I guess in order for a break, it would be the the US set sections of of Rush of Blood on the Gulf Coast of Florida. So I could see, you know, dolphins and manatees. And and even though there's kind of people getting murdered around me, um, you know, at least the weather would be nice. <laughs> yeah, true. But it's nice weather here today. I'll settle for that. It is. It's ridiculous. We're rubbish at it, aren't we? I'm like, oh, it's ridiculous. I'm melting. I'm melting. But there you go. Yeah. Plus, it's too expensive to put fans and stuff on because, you know, electricity is just crazy. Yeah, it's got quite pricey, hasn't it? It's <laughs> yeah. got a little bit pricey. <laughs> so we just have to melt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which of your characters give you gives you most trouble when you're writing them? Well, in terms of the character, I suppose I suppose the characters I write regularly 
there's only really three or four of them that, that, that feature in all the books, Thorne and Hendrix and Tanner and Brigstock. Um, I don't know, maybe Nicola Tanner gives me the most trouble because with Hendrix and Thorne, I've usually got them, you know, they've got each other to bounce off and those scenes are a lot of fun to write. Um, with Tanner, who's been quite lonely of late, although that might be changing. Um, if you've read the last book, um, you know, she's, it's usually just her and her cat and, uh, you know, those, 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 you know, and she's, she's still grieving her, her partner who was murdered. So those are quite tricky chapters to write to get the tone right. Um, so yeah, it's probably her. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not saying I write, I find writing Thorn easy. It's always, it's always a challenge because it should be, because I'm trying to do different things with him and he's a different character now. He's so much different. And in the murder book, just in that book, he, he goes through such a lot and changes so much. Um, you know, I can't write the same Thorn I've written before. I have to write it almost like he's a new character. You know, I have to accept the backstory he's got and all the stuff that's happened to him, and that plays an enormous part in the murder book, and that all sort of comes to a big head and lots of lots of chickens come home to roost. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I you know, no characters that you write should be easy. It shouldn't be easy. If it's easy, it's rubbish. If it's easy, it's probably because it's rubbish. Okay, so if you were to take out one of your characters for a meal, who would you choose and what would you ask them? Oh, oh, pro oh, almost certainly Phil Hendricks. We, uh, Thorne would be a right miserable bugger. I wouldn't want to take him out for me. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll take Hendricks to Nando's and, uh, and he, can, he can tell me some, some pathology secrets. Pathologists have got great stories, just great stories, which I have mined endlessly. I'm, I'm in touch with a couple of uh, pathologists. Uh, you know, and some of the stories are incredibly dark. You know, they've worked in, on some horrendous, horrendous cases. Um, but then once you get the horrendous cases out of the way, they tell you darkly funny stuff. You know, they all have a very dark, twisted sense of humour. So, yeah, oh, I think I'd have a great night, a great night over over spicy chicken in Nando's with Phil, definitely. Yeah, your black book must be insane. The amount of people from comedians <laughs> to... Yeah, the thing is, people, are, people get a bit suspicious now because when you ring them up and go, how are you doing? They're like, what do you want? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like, fancy going for a pint or a coffee? And it's like, yeah, what do you need? Um, I mean, it, it is great to, to have those contacts, though. And, you know, over 20 years, yeah, that black book has got... I wish there was a black book. It's nothing as sinister as that. It's just an email contact list and some phone numbers. Um, but, yeah, it, you know, it's nice to have people to call on. Oh, I need a forensic anthropologist. I need a pathologist. I need a psychiatrist. I need a neurologist. I need coppers. I need whatever, you know, paramedics. I need people that work for border control. I need, you know, there's always somebody. And, actually, people are really happy to help. And if you can't find them, you'll find another crime writer who's got that contact, you know. Um, I mean, the CWA actually publish a handbook every year, uh, and in the back of it, it lists all the members of the Crime Writers Association and kind of what their areas of expertise are. So, you know, talk to this person if you want to talk about firearms, this person if you want to talk about arson investigation, whatever it might be. So, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a thousand different contacts out there. Yeah, I was watching you talking to Will Dean, I think, and you're just like, yeah, I just went to America and I was just interviewed by this person and this person. And even Will Dean was like, just throwing these names out there, some of the biggest American... Oh, no, it was just, well, that was that was just, you know, you, you, you make a lot of contacts and a lot of friends in 20-odd years. And uh, all those writers I've mentioned, I've known for that long. And it was just a much happier tour to 
go to Baltimore and be interviewed by Laura Lippman, to go to Atlanta and be interviewed by Karen Slaughter, to go to New York, be interviewed by Lee Child, to go to Tampa, be interviewed by Mike Connolly. They, and it's pure, and it's very selfish. It's very selfish because firstly, they're bringing in a huge crowd because they're Michael Connolly and Lee Child and in their hometowns, you know? So they're bringing in a big crowd. I, I get to have the pleasure of being interviewed by them. And then, and then we go out and have something to eat. You know, it's a nice, it's not Billy No Mates going back to a lonely hotel room in New York somewhere. So it was a very, very selfish thing, uh, but it made the tour much more enjoyable, yeah. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Yeah, not jealous at all. I'm sure Will D wasn't at all jealous either. <laughs> well, it's an easy thing to do. I'm not stopping anybody else doing it. It's not like I haven't copyrighted the idea. Um, and, and you know what? The same thing happens in reverse. If If US authors come over here, they do exactly the same thing. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'll be interviewing Michael Connolly in Harrogate. You know, I, it, it, the, the, the favors, the favors are returned constantly. So, yeah, it's cool. It just made me laugh. <laughs> um, if you were to be a fictional killer, how would you kill your victims? Well, if I wanted to get away with it, <laughs> and I, which I suppose most fictional killers do, the, the best. This is awful. Talk about how to kill somebody. Um, I heard of a reasonably foolproof method, but for, for first of all, you need to live somewhere flash where you've got a swimming pool. That because it does involve a swimming pool. Um, but because <laughs> there's a there's a persistent rumor about a particular Hollywood star who may have murdered his wife like that. I'm not going to mention that person's name because um, I might get sued. But it's something I heard about many years ago. That you know. A couple, a couple are sunning themselves and drinking by a swimming pool, drinking heavily all afternoon. And then, you know, uh, the wife, um, the, hus the husband gets into the pool with the wife and drowns her. Or the wife gets into the pool with the husband and drowns him. Either way, you, you and then you just very calmly get out of the swimming pool, go upstairs, have a shower. Uh, come back down half an hour later and go, oh, my God, my wife slash husband slash partner has drowned. You call the police. And, you know, you left them by the pool, they were drinking, they've dived in, they've, you know, got into trouble because they were drunk and they've drowned. Uh, you don't want to be trying to drown someone who's got very, very sharp nails, who's going to leave all sorts of defensive wounds all over you. But I think that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good method. I'm sure somebody can pick holes in it, but I, I think that might work. Yeah, husband and wife, mm, because, you know, partners are the first person they look at. If you're going to kill someone, true. you need to kill a stranger. You also need to kill someone generally of a different race. And I don't want to kill a stranger. Why do you have to kill someone of a different race? Because they don't look at that. I'm, I have a forensics degree, so I know these things. Okay, all right. Yeah. Just FYI, well, I mean, you know. You know. <laughs> I suppose it can't be the hardest thing in the world to to kill somebody. Whenever there's cameras everywhere, isn't there? There's cameras everywhere. It's you know. Yeah, half of them I suppose well. I suppose the easiest way to get away with murder is to kill a complete stranger, utterly at random, yeah. one night on the street. You know, but oh, it, it's horrible. It's, what a horrible question, Donna. What a sick and twisted <laughs> person you are. Well, apparently. When I say that authors are weird because of the stuff they write, apparently readers are just as weird because... Oh, I think readers are weirder. Readers are far weirder. <laughs> you know, we're just making stuff up. You live with this stuff in your head all the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. When I said that, I was like, mm, actually, yeah, good point. Yeah. Okay, so if you were fictionally murdered, who would you want to solve your case? Oh, who would I want working on my case? <laughs> oh, that's a very good question. Um, well, I mean, I've got to say, Thorne, haven't I? I can't, I can't really 
you know, I mean, if we if I can go back, you know, Sherlock Holmes would sort it out for me in five minutes. I'm sure he would, but he's he's dead. Well, he's fictional and dead. Um, not 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 that Thorne isn't fictional as well. Um, but yeah, no, I don't. At least at least with Thorne, I don't think he'd give up. You know, he'd keep he'd keep at it, even if even if his bosses went leave it. It's a dead end. Put it on the back burner. We got nothing to go on. He was just found in a swimming pool. Um, he'd you know he'd he'd carry on. He'd keep digging. He'd keep digging. So yeah, he'll do. He'll do. And that would give me a, a sort of pleasure, knowing that him and Hendrix were on the case. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Not many authors choose their own um, characters, which I always think is really odd, but. Well, I mean, you know, again, depending on if I was murdered in America somewhere, I'd want Harry Bosch to be doing it. Um, although, you know, Harry Bosch doesn't work for police anymore, but he, he, I'd like him to get bought in as a kind of advisor, as a sort of special advisor. And again, he's just not somebody, you want somebody who isn't going to give up. You want somebody who's kind of dogged and driven and stubborn and doesn't know when to quit. One of those, one of those characters. I think I'd like Richard just because I know that some people along the way get knocked out. Oh, yeah, Reacher would hurt a lot of people on the way, for sure, for sure, which, again, would give me a lot of pleasure. And, again, if Reacher found out the person that was responsible, Reacher would just beat Seven Shades of Shit out of him, which, <laughs> as, as opposed to bringing them to justice, he'd just, you know, enact justice of his own. So, yeah, that yeah, no, that would be quite good. That'd be quite yeah, good. I'm not sure what that says about either of us, actually. No, not great. probably nothing, nothing good, nothing good. <laughs> Um, um, when you're editing, which although you've written loads of books, you must still overuse word or phrases, which are your... <laughs> OK, well, that's a very good question. And, and every writer knows this. OK, I've got loads of these. I mean, I think the thing I do all use way too much of are ellipses, dot, dot, dot. I use that all the time. And every time I deliver the first draft, my editor gets back and go, do you know how many ellipses there are in this book? You know, we go like 486. And I'm like, bloody hell. So I always have to take them out. It's just, it's just like a little tick. It's like a little, you know, weird tick I have that I constantly, instead of going full stop, go dot, dot, dot. I don't know why. Um, I overuse certain words and phrases, which I then have to check. Things like pretty much, just about, more or less. You know, and I have to swap those around and I suddenly realise I've used the word pretty much, pretty much all the time. <laughs> so I have, to, I have to rewrite that a lot. Actions that characters do. My characters are constantly shrugging and nodding. Uh, and I'm not, I know I'm not alone in this because writers talk about this. It's like you try and find some kind of action to go with the, with the line of dialogue. Uh, and it invariably involves a nod or a shrug or it involves actions that you can't find words for. You know how like you're talking to somebody and you go... <laughs> What's that? What is that? How do I describe that? Right? You know, or, you know, when you go, I hate the word chuckles, for example. I can't just, it's a word that seems wrong to me in a crime novel. Thorne chuckled. <laughs> but maybe that's exactly what he did. You know, if I just go, <laughs> that's a chuckle. But, but it's such a stupid word, I can't put it in. Um, yeah, I, I have, I have problems, with the, problems with these things all the time. Uh, <laughs> things I overuse, expressions, actions, loads of them. But, I, but at least I'm aware of them. But you still do them. Well, yeah, because I, I, I do them. It's somebody then, you know, that's what an editor's for. An editor is there or a copy editor is there to go, no, there's far too much shrugging. Do you know how much shrugging there is going on? God, they're all, they're all French. Poo. What's good? Poo. Yeah, way too much shrugging. I'm an over-shrugger. Yeah, I heard someone, um, I was listening to the podcast this morning and someone said there's only so many ways you can get someone to walk from one room to another. And you have to get them to walk from one room to another. But like padding, I hate padding. Everyone pads. But again, how can you say they walked without 
you know, there's only yeah. so many things. So yeah. yeah, they padded, they mooched, they crept, they, you know, it's like it's like writers who try and find too many different ways to say said when actually said does the job, you know. Elmer, that's one of Elmore Leonard's rules of writing. Just use said. Don't use any other word to go with a line of dialogue. So I try and stick with that. It was good enough for Elmore. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been doing this a long time. Is there anything that you still dread doing or dislike doing? Um, yeah, starting a book. Um, I mean, it is, it's really stupid because it doesn't matter how many times you've done it. So I'm about to start, or will shortly start, book 24. Uh, and I'm dreading it. I'm dreading it because, you know, book 23 is about done and there's a big few. And, oh, isn't that great? And you think, oh, I can maybe have a month off. But you know that little voice inside your head is going to go, come on, you've got to start. And by the time you sit back down to start it, it's like you've forgotten how to do it. It's really crazy. It's like you could ride a bike and then suddenly you can't ride a bike. And the first... 10,000 words, you just think, I can't do this again. How am I going to do this again? And by the time you maybe get to 100 pages, you think, oh, okay, maybe I'll, I'll get away with it one more time. Because you, you, it really is like, you know, I'm not a planner, so, that, so it's not like a huge plan I've got that I can start going, right, here we go, off we go, chapter one. I, have, I start to have a few ideas about things, but just, just that, you know, Dorothy Parker once said, I hate writing, I love having written. And I know exactly what she means. Uh, having the books done, seeing them in a bookshop, seeing people reading them is lovely. The thought of having to do another one. <laughs> and it's that, you know what, Donna, it's imposter syndrome. And every writer I know has got it. You just think this is the one that I'm going to get found out. You know, this is the time it isn't going to work. It, it, people aren't going to want to read it, whatever it is. But, you know, it it hopefully, I'm touching wood, hopefully it will it will get done. But, yeah, starting is always very tricky. I always say as a reader and a blogger, half of my life is spent boosting egos and saying, no, you're fine. Your book's amazing. You're great. It's fine. Please carry on writing <laughs> because the amount of authors are going, oh, it's rubbish and it's not selling up. No, shut up. You're fine. But Please. That's, you know, that's, that is most writers. And, and, I, and I don't really trust the writers who, you know, you, if two writers are having a conversation and you go, how's the new book going? They go, brilliant. It's the best thing I've ever written. That's like, ah, 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 that's real. That's an alarm. You think that is going to be a dog of a book. You know, most of the writers I know who've written brilliant books have thought those books are rubbish all the way through. And that's that's the way it should be, I think. Yeah, and yet to us it's infuriating. It's like we want to shake you and go, for God's sake, like you're, <laughs> you're getting awards left, right and centre and everyone's raving about it and you've got like a million five-star reviews. What's wrong with you? But yeah. It doesn't like, matter. It doesn't matter. It's, it's such a bizarre thing because by the time it's just... However, yeah, how, but when it's just you and the computer, you know what I mean? It's just you trying to put that sentence down and trying to make that paragraph work and trying to make that chapter work and see how that chapter fits into that, you know. When it's just you, there's, it's just you having a conversation with yourself and, and the doubt, the doubt should be there all the time. You shouldn't be just going, oh, this is marvellous. Look at me. Oh, what a sentence. <laughs> you know, you're just going, oh, is the but in the right place? Is the and in the right place? It's... <laughs> You know, like I said before, it is not digging a ditch. It's the best flipping job in the world, and it's such a privilege to write books and to get paid for writing them. But but that doesn't mean you don't have very many moments of self-doubt. Um, one thing I noticed at Harrogate last year was you didn't get left alone at all the whole whole weekend. Does that get tiring at all? Um, it's, it's tiring at the end of the day. You go to bed way too late because you're an idiot. 
um, <laughs> you know, it's two o'clock in the morning, you're in the bar and there's a voice in your head going, go to bed, you silly old fool. Uh, and, but then, you know, somebody else has come and have a drink or there's somebody you haven't seen for the whole weekend. Um, but that is, that's part, that is what you're there for. You're there to be, and it is tiring being on, you know, kind of being on, not just when you are, are, are supposed to be on because you're doing that interview and you're supposed to have that session and you're hosting the quiz or you're doing whatever you're doing. Obviously, you know about those, but the rest of the time is when you're just standing around with a drink in your hand and a reader wants to have a chat. And that's what you're there for. You're there to meet every bit as much as you, you're there to meet all your fellow writers and go, oh, well, I, may, oh, I haven't seen you for a while. You're there to meet readers. And and if you don't want to do that, then A, you're a bit of an arsehole, uh, and B, you shouldn't really go. You know what I mean? That, because that that is what festivals are there for. And, and Harrogate's a very different festival. There are festivals we go to where you go, you do your event, you sign books, and away you go. Uh, you know what I mean? You don't really um, meet anybody or, or, or engage with anybody. Harrogate is a whole weekend of readers and writers just engaging. You know, there is no special area. There's no velvet rope. There's no authors over there and readers over there and bloggers over there and reviewers over. Everybody is just all together all the time. And that's why it's great. And if you don't enjoy it, don't do it. You know, don't go and be miserable. Don't go and be a sort of curmudgeon who goes, no, now, not now, not for me. I'm, I'm uh, you know. You are there to meet people and largely meet the people who are paying your freaking wages. You're largely there to meet people who, without whom, you wouldn't have a job. So, Val done that to me. She blanked me and Linda Checkley at Harrogate last year. Who, who blanked you? Val, Val McDermott. Well, I, you know, maybe you caught her at a bad moment because, yes. but I mean, you know, it's. I've heard it's, she's lovely. So I was like, she is. <laughs> I was like, well, um, she blanked me. So. <laughs> look, every, I mean, everybody has a bad moment. You know, you, you, you yeah. don't know what, what news they might have just got or what might, might just have happened to yeah. them or whatever. And, you know, nobody nobody kind of wants to be approached to talk about the new book while they, you know, in the toilet or whatever. And I'm not saying you did that with that. But, but you know what I mean? There's, but, but largely, largely everybody is and should be hugely approachable. See, I didn't even come up to you because you were just always busy. But this year I will because I want a photo. Yeah, make sure you do. I will, I promise. All right. <laughs> um, I mean, I was, I was taking a piss out of you at Bloody Scotland, so you look knackered anyway, so it's fine. And because you didn't remember... You, said I, you said I looked knackered before we started this chat. Do I always look knackered? To be Maybe fair, I you am always knackered. When, well, I see you when you're busy, so, you know, yeah. <laughs> I can't help okay. it. It's not like I see you in daily life, because that would be really weird. That would be odd. That yeah. would be odd. I've, yeah. I've been accused okay. of being a stalker, but I haven't quite got to that stage yet. I do okay, have a that's good. Job. That's not... That's nice to hear. <laughs> yeah. And you actually live fairly close to me as well, so, you know. Uh-oh. <laughs> Although I don't know exactly where, so you're fine. Okay. I have okay. lots of Wolfers addresses, so they're the ones. Hires security <laughs> immediately. I know forensics as well, so, you know. Oh, not that I'd Christ. want to kill you if I could. Oh, Christ, you'd get away with it as well, wouldn't you? <laughs> Too right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've met loads of amazing authors, but is there any that you'd love to spend a day with? that's either not around anymore or that you've not met yet? Oh, yeah, they, it would be a writer that's not around anymore. I mean, I, I am lucky enough. I, I, I just, I got in. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I wasn't around in time to meet Raymond Chandler or anything like that. But I was I was around and, and working in the in the business in time to meet people like Elmore Leonard and all the, you know, and P.D. James and Ruth Rendell and Colin Dexter and all those characters uh, who are all sadly gone now. Um, but in terms of writers of comic field, yeah, I'd love to sit down and have, have a drink with Dashiell Hammett uh who's who's a big hero of mine um very very long dead but but that would be brilliant uh yeah 
yeah, somebody like that. And I'd like to have met John le Carre, although I'm not sure, which I never did. Um, I was in the same room, but I never, you know, go, hey. Um, but I'm not sure he'd have been awfully chatty. I don't think he was a very, you know, he, he would never go to festivals, really. He would never allow himself to be put up for awards or anything like that. He was a very private person. Um, but I'd want somebody who'd, who'd, you know, you could have a good drink with. I think Dashiell Hammett would have done that. If you're able to travel to any period of time, either forwards or backwards, where would you like to go? Uh, 1966, London. I'd like to. I'd like to have been hanging out. You know, when when the Beatles were. You know, if I could be any person that's ever existed at any time, I think I'd want to be Paul McCartney in about 1966 to be just about the coolest person on the planet at the coolest time. Um, you know, when the world is kind of at your feet and. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think the mid to late 60s would have been an amazing time to be around. But I mean, I do, I'm saying that as, you know, in hindsight, I know that it was looking back on it. But maybe if you were around at that time, it was just as miserable as it is now. <laughs> you know, now we're going, oh, my God, the cost of living and electricity and war and a stupid government and all that stuff. Maybe there were people, you know, I mean, they did have things like the Vietnam War going on. I mean, they did have a lot of shit to deal with. But just... <laughs> But yeah, I, I think London would have been in a very a very cool place to be hanging around. Or hey, you know, New York in the twenties, that would have been. I, th I think that would have been quite a jumping scene. I wouldn't want to yeah. go back. To, I wouldn't want to go back anywhere beyond the sort of twentieth century. I wouldn't want to go further back when there's handsome cabs or you, people are wearing togas or tights or ruffs <laughs> or silly hats. I've got enough silly hats, but I wouldn't want to wear not one with a big, you know feathering um so Didn't yeah. you wear tights in maid mary <laughs> I've, oh listen i've worn i've worn tights a good deal in my time uh but 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 mostly when i'm i'm playing somebody else i don't think i'd want to get, get them on every day <laughs> a bit sweaty and yeah yeah <laughs> we don't like wearing them you know they're our design for us so oh i know yeah um who is your first celebrity crush um, it, okay, well, oh, pro probably, uh, oh, probably Sally James in Tiswas. Um, you're too young to remember Tiswas. Uh, Saturday morning, silly knockabout kids show with Chris Tarrant and Lenny Henry and, and Sally James. Um, before that, uh, or around the same time, um, who was the woman like Susan Stranks, who used to present Magpie, which was like the ITV version of uh, Blue Peter, uh, or Susie Quattro. Um, again, these are all, you know, and, and bizarrely, I found myself, yeah, Susie Quattro, you know, in leathers doing Can the Can on top of the pops, playing the bass. Um, and then I found myself on my way to a festival about five years ago, sitting opposite her, sitting opposite Susie Quattro. And I didn't recognise her. And I, but, but I'm like going, why is that person familiar? And she's talking on the phone and she's got America. And I suddenly, I suddenly went, oh my God. And I, I'm literally looking at her while calling up on my phone, Susie Quattro doing Can the Can, like in the early 70s. And then looking at, I'm going, oh my God, it's Susie Quattro. So yeah, that was quite cool. Did you not so speak you to her? No, no. You're like the what most popular person ever. Like. I know, but what are you supposed to say? Um, you know, God, I was in love with you when I was, 14 i mean what you know what i mean that's a strange i know but all that's going to do is make that person feel very old probably so i didn't want to do that i did say more or less that too i was lucky enough to meet debbie harry who i had a massive crush on and got a kiss off her 
uh, at a party that Blondie were playing at, at a private party. And she came and like mingled afterwards. And they were the first band I ever saw. They were, the, they were the support band at the first gig I ever went to, proper gig. And I said that. And she was like, oh, you're so sweet. And I got a little kiss on the cheek. So, yeah, she was. She, but she was after. She was after the likes of Sally James and Susie Quattro. All very popular choices, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. I can understand Debbie Harry as well. I mean, she's oh, still. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, she certainly is. Yeah. Still. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, I may be young, but I do know. My mother has taught me well in the music of the past. We spent every weekend watching the 70s channel, so. Okay. Oh, the 70s channel's great. Yeah. The dancing, not so much. And the clothes no. and the hairstyles, actually. <laughs> I, I still think music. And people say people are always very dismissive of the 70s music, but that... I mean, it had everything, the 70s, in, in music. I mean, obviously, it had, in the early 70s, we had Glam, which I loved. You know, I loved Slade and Sweet and T-Rex uh, and all those bands. And then, and, and, the, and then, of course, there was Prog, which I also loved, because I loved Genesis and Pink Floyd and Yes and King Crimson and all that terrible Prog stuff. And then Punk. Punk came along when I was 16, you know, and I, which was absolutely, you know, I, I, I think I was very lucky to have grown up in the 70s. Um, funnily enough, I, I've been watching a lot of you know Top of the Pops from the '90s, and it was rubbish. Sorry, I just think it's rubbish. I know Luca. Luca would massively disagree with me about this. He thinks it's the best decade ever. He loves like the '80s and '90s, but give me the '70s every time. Steve, it's the '80s for me, but one of my favourite bands is the Jam. So there you go. I've seen Paul Weller, and I've seen From the Jam a few times, and yeah. So I saw the Jam. I saw the Jam second to last ever gig. At, uh, at Bingley Hall, and they were just awesome. They were. I remember thinking, how can three people make so much noise? There was just three of them, and it was just so loud. They were awesome. The Jam, absolutely awesome, brilliant band. Yeah. Oh, and I got, I got to. So, so there's a musician I've been a fan of for years and years called Graham Parker, right? Who used to Graham Parker in the Room, amazing live band in the seventies, and and their former guitar player, uh, a brilliant guitarist called Martin Belmont, is my guitar teacher. So, you know, I play guitar with him every week and we talk about stuff. And he tells me all these stories about gigging with Bob Dylan and all the time. I'm like, oh, my God. And, and Graham was playing at a gig and Martin and I went. We went along. And obviously he was like a guest and whatever because he used to be in the band. So we got backstage, you know. So we went back and I walked into this sort of big dressing room and there was Graham. And I went, oh, you know, nice show, Graham. And I know him a bit because he did. He worked with me and my darling Clementine on this sort of show we did a few years ago. So I said, oh, hi, Mike, how are you doing? And I was aware on my right-hand side of the shock of what I thought was blonde hair. And he went, oh, Mark, this is... And I looked over and I went, Paul Weller! And I don't, I don't think I actually said Paul Weller, but I, that's what I was thinking, just shouting Paul Weller in my head. And I was like, oh, hello, mate, how are you doing? And he went, all right, man, I'm thinking, you know, Paul Weller, just sitting on the sofa. That was awesome. That was absolutely oh, awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, my mum and I go to uh, From the Jam and it's Bruce Foxton, isn't it? That's yeah. still original. I think he may recognise us because we always stand at the front. So okay. that's pretty cool, yeah. So yeah, we, yeah. we stand his side rather than the side of the guy that's doing the singing, the Paul Weathers yeah, no. stuff. Yeah, because so, yeah, Bruce Foxton cool. was in the jam. So you, yeah, you want to stand exactly. on his side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I swear he hasn't aged a day. <laughs> no, <laughs> he looks pretty good. Years. And actually, I think Rick Buckler looks pretty good. He really looks good. Um, I mean, Weller still looks great. Weller's just yeah. such a stylish human being, you know. Yeah, and Brucey still jumps and does his weird little yeah. jumpy thing that, I'm sorry, buddy, hell. Good. <laughs> That's what yeah. you want. 
yeah it's awesome yeah lots of people reliving their youth <laughs> yeah nothing wrong with that donna nothing no, wrong with that absolutely not um where's the strangest or funniest place you've ever woken up <laughs> in a skip no i no i don't think i've ever woken up in a skip I remember waking up in a park. I have woken up in a park. I remember when I lived in, I used to live in South London and we went to some party and it all got a bit out of hand. I mean, I'm, you know, this is my twenties or something and, and waking up in a strange park and not having not the remotest idea where I was. And I have since realized that park is virtually opposite where I, where I then <laughs> went on to live in uh, on the Holloway road. Uh, There's a little park in there. I don't think I've ever woken up anywhere stranger than that. Um, no, no, no. I'm, I'm most particular about where I go to bed. <laughs> Usually in my bed, in my bed, you know, 99 well, yeah, times out of 100. Yeah. Yeah. Just usually with boys, especially when they're young, they get drunk and get naked and end up falling asleep in the weirdest of places. I love it. <laughs> no, great. no, nothing weirder than a park. I mean, I've, you know, constantly on, uh, on a tube train. I used to do that quite a lot where you'd wake up at the, at the end of the line <laughs> and, you know, you'd be shaken awake by some guard going, we're here, mate. And you'd go, oh, God, my stop was half an hour ago. That a few times. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's warm and, you know, then, right. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I totally get that. I have to put matchsticks on my eyes, otherwise I would fall to sleep as well. <laughs> and I snore, so I wouldn't okay. be very popular. Yeah, bad. Um, although it sounds like you may have already done this, but if you were to be a woman to for a day, what would you wear and what would you get up to? What do you mean it sounds <laughs> as if you've already done this? Well, oh, you're an, what have you heard? <laughs> yeah, Luca um, told me all your secrets. <laughs> well, they were... I mean, yeah, there's been a lot of dressing up in, in frocks and stuff over the years. Uh, I bet you're very fetching in the dress. <laughs> if I was a woman for a day, what would I do? Yeah. It's a perfectly normal question. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> no. Um, I've got no idea. I mean, I think it would be a fascinating... Just to walk about. Just to walk about and see how people react to you uh, that is different to how you're used to being reacted to. Uh, I mean, I think I'd be a fairly striking woman because I'd be six foot two. Um, <laughs> yeah, you would be. You know. uh, so I think a lot of, you know, I'd probably get a lot of strange look. I don't know. I don't know what I'd do. I don't know what I'd do. Do women do things that are different to, I mean, you know, I, you do, I don't see, see that, that you'd spend your day doing anything much different than I'd do. You go and, you know, you go shopping, you go work, you have your dinner, you go to bed. I mean, I, you know, I'd just be doing it in a dress, which I'm sure is very liberating. Not necessarily. I think I would wear a dress. I think if you're going to dress up, there's no, I wouldn't go, oh, I'll wear a nice trouser suit. I'd want to, <laughs> because on the occasions I've worn a kilt, of which there have been many, I've always found it very kind of, oh, yeah, I like that swishy. I do kind of like the swishy business. So, yeah, I'd just swish. That's what I'd do. I'd walk around swishing. <laughs> Would you wear heels as well? Would you go full out? Even oh, God, no heels. Too? I couldn't wear heels. <laughs> I could not wear heels. That's an accident waiting to happen. I'd, I'd be in casualty within the first five minutes. <laughs> oh, I love sitting, trying to see guys walking heels. Actually, it's what I like, look like walking in heels, and I'm short, so it's quite depressing. Yeah. No, it'd be, it'd be flat for me. <laughs> um, what's the weirdest compliment you've ever received, either as an author or just as a person? Um... That I'm very punctual. <laughs> okay. 
And I, I take that as a great compliment because that's hugely important to me. I'm a bit of a psycho about, about punctuality. It's the courtesy of kings. No, I am. I hate lateness. I hate myself being late. I hate anybody that I'm supposed to be meeting being late. When somebody breezes in half an hour late and just goes, yeah, yeah, traffic was bad. You go, the traffic's always bad. That You allow for that. Um, I, you know, I, I am a nutcase about it. I will be at an airport five hours before a flight. Now, I'm just very... And I will be at 10 minutes early for any meeting, walking around the, you know, going for a cup of coffee while I'm waiting for the tea. You know, I get everywhere early and I, yeah. So if somebody goes, God, you're punctual, I'm like, thank you very much. Thank you yeah. very much indeed. Yeah, that's Nothing just wrong polite. with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's it. that's the, only, the only compliment I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Aww. Um, I can't compliment you too much, otherwise you'd call the police and get a restraining order. So, you know. Okay. No. Don't do that. No. Yeah. I mean, people think... I mean, look, you, you, yeah, to be serious, you know, you are kind of complimented all the time when people say they like your books. If people... I mean, plenty of people say they don't like your books. You know, you get plenty of emails from people going, that's rubbish. And that's fine. Um, but whenever, whenever somebody gets in touch to go... I really like the book or, you know, that's great. Or, or occasionally something really amazing, like, you know, your book made me want to start reading again. I haven't read a book in 10 years or you hear something like that. That's, that's the best compliment you can have as a writer. I mean, you know, if you're a footballer, you want a different kind of compliment, like, Oh my God, you've got a, such a sweet left foot or whatever it might be. But, but uh, as a writer, you want those kind of compliments from readers, just somebody getting in touch going, wow, I couldn't put your book down. Or, you know, I thought that I'd lost my whole, the reading mojo and now I've got it back. Thanks to your book. That's as good as it gets. Won't be saying that about the English England team at the minute, will we? No, we won't. No, we won't. They need to be taken out the back and shot, I think. I wouldn't go quite that far. Nah, they're pretty bad. It's a little bit extreme, Donna, but there you go. <laughs> I'm a reader, what can I say? Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Um, so what's coming next for you? Well, um, so I'm, I'm shamelessly pimping the murder book, which is, you know, the return of Thorn, the return of Stuart Nicklin, who is Thorn's nemesis. And it's, going, and it's the last Thorn book for a bit. Uh, you know, he will be back. I'm not killing him off or anything, but I'm starting a new series. And the first one of those is written and that'll be out next year. And that's a much different series about a very different kind of policeman. Uh, who isn't based in London, uh, who is very, very different to Thorne in every respect. And the books are intentionally funnier and lighter, very different in tone. So, you know, I hope readers will go with me on that journey. Um, we'll, we'll have to see. So, yeah, that's what's coming next is the first Declan Miller book, which will be out this time next year. Fabulous. And where can people catch up with you over the summer? Oh, oh Lord. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah, where can't they? Look, I better look at my diary. That's how, look, old-fashioned diary. How's that? None of your computer stuff. So what am I doing? Okay, well, I'm off to Borders Book Festival this very weekend up in uh, up in Scotland, where I'll be showing off with Chris Brookmeyer. Doing a, we do a kind of rude show. We do a sort of naughty show where we just, we don't talk about, well, we talk about the books for about five minutes, and then for the rest of the show, we just read out one-star reviews and reader complaints. And I saw, yeah, you know, I saw that at Bloody Scotland. It was great. We it love that. We love yeah. that. Um, <laughs> so doing that, and I'm going to be, uh, I'm, in I'm in Chorley Wood tomorrow night at Chorley mm -hmm. Wood Golf Club. How's that? With, uh, with Tony Kent and 
Then I've got events coming up in Essex, the Essex Book Festival, and I'm going to obviously, I'm obviously Harrogate, and I'm in Armagh with Armagh Dermot Stewart, Neville, Butte Noir, uh, Fringe by the Sea in North Berwick, Edinburgh Festival, Edinburgh Book Festival, uh, Capital Crime, Iceland Noir. Hither and yon, Donna. Hither and bloody yon. I should be showing up like a bad penny. And and all that stuff's on my all that stuff's on my website anyway, in the kind of on the events page. So yeah, if if anybody sees it somewhere that's kind of near them, um, they want to come along and shout at me. Easy yeah. enough to do. Does your wife recognise you when you come home? Or <laughs> yeah. Oh God, no. She's very happy that I've gone away most of the time. <laughs> Um, but well, I, I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's, uh, it's a difficult, it's a, you know, my wife's TV director. She, she's just spent, she's just spent months away from home working up in Newcastle. She's directing Vera, you know, based on the Anne Cleves book. Uh, so, you know, she, she's always working away from home. You know, she has to go where the work is and where the, the filming is taking place. Uh, or I'm away from home. I'm in Canada or whatever. So we, you know, it's like a military operation. When are we actually going to see each other? When are we going to see the children? But it all, it all, it all works out in the end. Yeah. Um, so just before we go, would you like to tell everyone where they can find your books and where they can find out more about you? Well, hopefully they can find my books in any good bookshop or online at any online retailer of their choosing, of which there are many, or at their local independent bookshop, which I would thoroughly recommend uh, because they really need supporting. And actually, we, we, I think next week is Independent Bookshop Week. Uh, and, it, and it really is a good time to be supporting your local indie bookshop. So I would do that. Um, if they want to find out, I mean, I'm always lurking around on social media, Twitter at Mark Billingham, my web sh- website, www.markbillingham.com. I'm on Facebook, Mark Billingham author. They're, God, you can't not, you know, you can't ignore me. I'm, I'm just everywhere. Not as much as Mike Craven. I swear that guy oh. has taken over my feeds today. All okay. I see is his face. And it's not that pretty a face, so you know, it's just my well, all the. I'm not saying that's you know, his face. No, <laughs> I wouldn't. You, no, you do have, to, you know, you do have to do that stuff. You know, you, even when I started, that's there wasn't so much of that. You know, you would have to go to festivals and, you know, show off a bit and and make a fool of yourself and stand up and, and talk about the books. And which that, you've and always that was, struggled with. And that was fine, which I've always really struggled with. Yeah, yeah I can um, tell you. But now, in the age of social media, there's there is you know, and boy, there, there's also the stuff I don't engage with, like Instagram and TikTok and that stuff, which I just don't understand. But just keeping keeping abreast of Twitter and Facebook and keeping your website updated and doing all that stuff, it all takes time, but it's all really important. You know, you've got to you you know, you need to, and and also, it's a very easy way to engage with readers. You know, if a, I can understand why why back in the days of letters and all that sort of stuff. Uh, writers didn't always because you know are they really going to spend half an hour replying to a reader or whatever it might be if they got a letter of complaint or whatever it is but now if somebody emails you going I really like the book how much effort is it to go thank you very much that's lovely to hear boom it takes seconds to do Um, so it's a very it's a very simple way to to stay in touch with people Um, especially in those sort of 10 or 11 months a year when you don't have a book out you know, I mean, right now it's an exciting time for me. The book's just come out. I'm doing events and stuff. But then I'll just go back into my little, into my little attic, and this is my little attic, and uh, and write again. And so, you know, there's always the odd festival appearance, but this is the kind of hectic time. And I would say I speak to loads of authors, and you're one of the easiest people to talk to and get quickest response. So, if anyone wants well, to talking to you, then yeah. there's rarely an excuse for not 
responding, mm. you know, in this day and age. It's easy. Yes. Well, I shall let you go. Um, All righty. Thank well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for uh, interesting questions. <laughs>